Well, good morning again, everybody, and a special welcome to those of you that are worshiping with us over at our Spanish Trail campus today. Pray that things are well there this morning and that you worship the Lord well and that everybody's happy and whole. And we welcome those of you as well that are tuning in online at hillcrestchurch.com or following us on Facebook Live this morning. Welcome wherever you may be. The Bibles are open this morning to Acts chapter 20. And so if you're not there already, be finding the 20th chapter of Acts. And as we continue to visit uh, in this series called Sent, which is a series that focuses on the major missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, we're going to come this morning and um, address an important subject, namely the ministry of encouragement. I'm just curious today, does anybody in the house need to be encouraged? Amen? I'm telling you, if you're alive and breathing, chances are that you need to be encouraged of all the spiritual gifts that are identified in the Bible, of all of the great Christian virtues represented in the body of Christ, I am convinced that none are more necessary or more needed in these important days than encouragement. It goes without saying that many churches in America and around the world are populated with very fine preachers. Many churches have a plethora of highly skilled Bible teachers. And many people have a host of men and women who are ready to serve in various kinds of hands-on ministry, no doubt about it. But doesn't it seem to you like we're constantly in need of people to give the blessing of encouragement. How many of you know people that have stereotyped the church as a place of criticism? They've stereotyped the church as a place of hypocrisy. That place down there is full of what? Hypocrites, right? And so they have negative ideas concerning the church. Did you know that the church, by definition, is supposed to be the most uplifting spirit-filled, encouraging, happy place on the planet. And so we're constantly in need of people to encourage us. Somebody described encouragement once as the oxygen of the soul, the oxygen of the soul. And I think that's a great way to put it because it is indeed tough out there. It's a tough world, a cruel world, and we all need encouragement. Somebody said one time that a pat on the back is only about that far from a hard kick in the rear end. There's only that much difference between a kick in the seat of the pants and a pat on the back. And that being the case, the pat on the back is so much more beneficial and gets you miles ahead in terms of the positive outcome and the positive results. So make no mistake, no matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done with your life, no matter how much money you've made, how successful people say you are, if you're alive and breathing, you need encouragement from others and you need to learn how to be an encourager yourself. I love studying Abraham Lincoln. I've spent much of my life reading Lord knows how many books about Mr. Lincoln and it's always surprised me that on the night Mr. Lincoln was assassinated, he only had about five articles on him outside of his clothing. He had two pair of reading glasses on his person. He had an embroidered handkerchief in his pocket, 
Uh, he had a pair of uh, binoculars because he was at a play, of course, and that pair of binoculars just recently sold at auction for something like two or three million dollars. Somebody here may have bought that, I don't know. Um, he had, interestingly, a Confederate $5 bill in his pocket. Didn't have any union money, but he had a Confederate $5 bill. Nobody knows why he had that. But also in his person, folded up, was a newspaper clipping. The creases were sharp, so he'd been there for a long time. And Lincoln, of course, was prone to incredible, vicious criticism from all over the country. And so in his pocket, he had a newspaper article. And when the folks who took it off of him opened it up to read it, it was a positive article from some newspaper in which the writer was giving strong and encouraging words about the President of the United States. He had that in his pocket on the night that he died. I write a lot of handwritten cards. I'm still old school when it comes to correspondence. Many of you have probably received a handwritten card because I know what it means to people. I've had people come to me and show me those cards. They've got them in their Bibles. They've had them in there for years. All because somebody took the time to recognize something that happened in their life or to encourage them when they were at a low point in their life. I'm just saying, I have found it to be true. There are very few things that will bless your life like the powerful words of an encourager, somebody who uses not only words but also physical actions in a way that builds you up, that motivates you to be your very best. And that's what's at play here as Paul begins to wind down not only his ministry in Ephesus but his third missionary journey as a whole. We're at the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey of the three that are recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. And he spent most of that time, the great majority of that time on the third journey in one city, which was of course Ephesus, a thriving metropolis, a commercial and religious and financial center there uh, in Western Asia Minor. And uh, he'd been there firmly rooted, teaching out of a rented lecture hall, the school of Tyrannus, for over two years of the three years that he had spent there. And now it's time for him to move on. He's got his sights set back to Jerusalem again, and he's making plans to kind of wind down the journey. And what we're going to do this Sunday and next here in chapter 20 is look at a couple of very important vignettes, pictures that Luke paints here that have to do with Paul and his ministry of encouragement to these local churches. Now, I'm convinced that Paul hadn't always been the greatest encourager. Paul's principal gifts were prophecy and teaching. And that's why God paired him at first with a guy like Barnabas who majored on what? Encouragement. Barnabas's name meant son of encouragement. And they went together on their first missionary journey before they split up and went their separate ways when Paul was ready to begin his second missionary journey. But I think that he profited from his time with Barnabas, and I think that he learned some things from Barnabas because the farther along that we see Paul in these missionary journeys, the farther removed we are from the very abrasive Paul that we have early in his life and ministry. And now, uh, as President George H.W. Bush would say, a kinder, gentler Paul, the apostle. A Paul that's majoring now on a ministry of encouragement to the church 
so that the church could become encouragers themselves. Look with me at Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he'd gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Macedonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, let's just stop there, because right out of the gate, you saw that Paul was engaged in the ministry of encouragement, particularly to the disciples there in Ephesus before he left. But he was leaving to go back and revisit some of the cities that he'd been to before. Why? For the purpose of giving them some much-needed encouragement. So never forget that encouragement is one of the much needed and most important ministries of the local church, and Paul has become an example of it. His life proves it, and uh, we're going to learn some things from that today as it relates to the church because Paul takes a lot of time and he spends a lot of energy to connect with and encourage, it, encourage others. Why? Because he wants them to continue to grow. The purpose of encouragement in the local body of Christ is to spur one another on to continued growth and development of faith in the body of Christ so that we don't get sidetracked and so that our faith journey goes on upward unabated in the body of Christ. When you're discouraged, that will impede growth like nothing else. And so the Bible says that. We're familiar with what the Scripture says in Hebrews 10. Let us not give up meeting together, or as the King James Bible says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we all remember that. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And that part we often leave out. Well, the Bible says, let's not give up meeting together. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why not? Because when you forsake the assembling of yourselves together, encouragement in the body flies out the window. Our being with one another is supposed to foster encouragement that leads to spiritual growth. And there are three principal ways that we're going to see from this text in Acts chapter 20 how the church gives and receives encouragement. Today, we'll look at the first two. Next Sunday, we'll come back and finish out by looking at the third. The first is the encouragement of giving. Now, we've already talked a lot about giving this morning, and this is totally of the Lord because I'm not smart enough to plan this kind of thing. But one of the things that the church does that proves to be an encouragement not only to those within the church but to those outside the church is to participate in the ministry of giving. Now, Paul's getting ready to leave Ephesus after having been there for three years. He's got his sights back to Jerusalem, way back to the east. In fact, Luke's going to later tell us that Paul wants to get back there in time 
for the Feast of Pentecost in the spring, and that's part of the reason that he leaves Ephesus when he does. But before he goes back east again, it's interesting that the first thing that he does is travel west before he goes back to the east. And he's headed first, the Bible says, for Macedonia. So he's got to get in a boat at Troas and cross westward across the Aegean Sea to get to Macedonia, which is where he visited on his second journey. And then he's going to go overland to the south down to the region of Achaia, which is what we know as Greece. So before he goes east to Jerusalem, he's going to go west back to Macedonia and Greece, principally to Corinth. And the purpose of this Macedonia-Greece mini-tour is revealed by Paul in the greatest letter ever written. We're not told here exactly why in the book of Acts he's going over to Macedonia and Greece again. But when Paul gets there, one of the things that he's going to do when he finally arrives in Corinth is he's going to write a letter that's to be delivered to the church at Rome, a place that he'd never been. And in the 15th chapter of his letter to the Romans, we find out why he's over there in the first place. Romans 15 and verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Everybody see that? Say amen. He's on a capital campaign. He's raising money for the church at Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were what? Say it out loud. Say it again. I just wanted to hear you say they were pleased to do it. They were pleased to give. They didn't grumble when the preacher came with the knapsack in hand and said, let's fill it it full of coinage. Somebody say amen. They were pleased to participate. Why? Because they knew their participation in this relief offering was going to be an act of spiritual encouragement to those who needed it the most. So Paul goes west before he heads east because he wants to challenge the churches of Macedonia and Greece to help support their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem with a financial offering. And these were brothers and sisters that they'd never met. They didn't know anything about them. The offering was meant to support those Jerusalem congregants who were really suffering. They were suffering, one, because there had been an extended period of famine in that part of Palestine during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. We know that. That was a historical fact. So there's not a lot of food. And not only that, for those who were believers in the church at Jerusalem, many of them were suffering economic deprivation simply because they decided to follow Jesus Christ and they were bold about it. And so because of famine and because of persecution, persecution that came as a result of their faith, many of them were struggling financially. And this was an opportunity For these new disciples over in Macedonia and Greece, primarily Gentiles, by the way, Gentile believers, Greek-speaking believers, to help fellow believers who were principally Jewish believers, Gentiles showing solidarity with and support for Jewish believers. This was an opportunity for Paul to preach unity in the body of Christ across across color lines, across geographic boundaries, across language barriers. 
It doesn't matter who we are, where we're from, what color we are, how much money we've got in the bank. If we follow Jesus Christ, we are all one in the body of Christ. And we all matter to God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so this was tantamount, get this, to the first capital campaign of the early church. And how did these Gentile churches respond when Paul passed out the commitment card? Somebody say amen. What'd they do? Well, I don't get the impression any of them turned in a blank card. Paul, well, they didn't have cards. I'm making all that up. You all know that, don't you? But Paul answers the question in 2 Corinthians. Because after he'd spent time in Corinth at the end of this little mini tour over in Macedonia and Greece, he goes from Corinth back up to Macedonia where he spends a little time. And from there, he writes his last letter to the Corinthians, what we know as 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Two of them are lost. The last one is what we know as 2 Corinthians, which is really 4 Corinthians, but we don't know where the other two are. And in that last letter that he wrote just after having been there, we get an impression about how those people responded. Because in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's the famous giving passage where Paul, so probably the most familiar passage there is that God loves a cheerful giver, right? So here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme, what? Say it out loud. Poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, that doesn't even make sense. Poverty yielding generosity. But that's what happened. These were not rich people. These were poor folk, poor folk. And their poverty yielded a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Begging us, begging us. Man, you got to love that. Begging us earnestly. That's an intensive. For the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Man, they weren't running from the opportunity to give. They were looking forward to it. They were trying to figure out how they could do it more effectively. That's real generosity. It's like the woman that Jesus commended when he saw her at the temple, and there was a Pharisee that was throwing in all the money into the temple pot, and he was making it as noisy as possible so everybody could look at him and say, oh, gosh, look at that guy. He's giving all this money. And then here comes a little old woman with two copper coins, two pennies as we would know it, puts it in there, and Jesus Jesus said, I want you to look over there. That woman's giving more than the guy who's making all the clatter because she gives, she's giving out of her poverty. She's giving all she had. He's giving out of abundance. He's still going to Cheddar's when church is over this morning and having a filet. She's going to go home and have to figure out what she's going to eat. For anybody tracking with me. One gives out of poverty, but gives by the Spirit of God generously. Others give out of abundance. And these Macedonian churches were like the ones that gave out of poverty. They really didn't have it to give. 
It costs them something to give. Most of us, when we give, we're going to give today, but we're not going to miss a meal. We're not going to not put gas in our car, right? We're not going to go home to not turn on the television, watch a football game. Most of us are not going to not travel. We're not going to take a fall retreat somewhere. We're going to keep doing all that stuff, even though we give. We're still going to buy clothes. But this kind of giving was different. Because they probably had to give up something in order to support this project of Paul's. In fact, what was interesting, they were just begging Paul for the privilege of participation. Which most pastors would say, okay, that's weird. Because whenever we raise the issue of money, we know that there's, everybody's going to squirm. And here we go again kind of thing. But this is a great attitude. It was an encouragement to them to be able to give. They were encouraged to give. And the people that would be on the receiving end of their giving would be encouraged to receive it. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 12. For the ministry of this service, this giving service... To support the Jerusalem believers, the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many what? Say it out loud. Many thanksgivings to God. Encouragement, everybody's encouraged. The givers are encouraged. The receivers are encouraged. God the Father is encouraged to see this kind of response. And in the same way, we encourage one another by our giving today. We're encouraged when we see how others respond to God's call to give the first fruits of their wealth. That encourages us. When a church's budget grows, when a church is able to give more to missions than they ever have before, does that not encourage you? When your pastor stands up here and says, last year we gave more to missions than we ever have before, then the last 10 years at Hillcrest, we've given away over $5 million to missions here and around the world. That encourages my soul to be able to say that, and I know that it encourages your soul to be able to hear it because what that does is is it demonstrates that Jesus Christ is Lord and not our money. See, that's the thing about giving. Giving and generosity are the only two things that can dethrone money from becoming an idol in your heart. How do I keep money from becoming my idol? you got to give. There's no other way. The only way to ensure that Jesus is Lord and not money is to learn to hold it loosely, as Corey Ten Boom used to say. Learn to hold all things loosely and just let that stuff flow through you. Now, we got, all, we got stuff we got to provide. I got to pay a house note. I've got to support kids in college, y'all. I mean, we all have stuff we have to do, but we can all be givers, and we can all learn to be generous. Because when that happens, there's a lot of praise going on. There's praise to God. Others are praising the Lord. Others are encouraged by our giving. Every time we give, there's some people today that are being thankful because Hillcrest gives. There'll be some people over down the road, about two and a half, three hours, be thankful that Hillcrest gave. There are missionaries that many of you know serving in various parts of the world, they get a monthly check from Hillcrest that every time they get it, they praise the Lord. 
and they rejoice in the spirit of encouragement because they know they have a church back home that loves them and that supports them financially. There are children upstairs today that are studying curriculum. That stuff didn't just fall down through the chimney from the sky. We are able to buy curriculum and we're able to pay light bills and all of it because God's people give. We've got a wonderful worship center. That's an encouragement to me. But it's here because God's people gave. We don't get subsidies from Uncle Sam. It's here because God's people gave it and were encouraged to give it. So never forget, you make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give away. Amen. The work of ministry and missions always, have y'all ever heard me say it before? I don't know how to do ministry and mission without money. I don't know how to do that. If you know how to do that, then you need to be the pastor, not me. But it all costs money. You can't do mission and you can't carry on the work of ministry apart from God's people financially supporting it. And when we do, both those who give and those who receive are encouraged and blessed through the act of giving. Paul will say the very thing and same thing later in this chapter in Acts 20. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. That's, that's what Jesus said. So, everybody with me so far? This is one of the ways the church participates in the ministry of encouragement. We do it through giving. The second thing that we see here in Acts 20 with respect to giving and receiving encouragement is the encouragement of presence. The encouragement of, of presence. And this is really important because you've probably noticed it as we've gone through this study. One of the things we see Paul consistently doing, not only here on this third journey, but really in all three of the missionary journeys, is he's, he revisits places that he's already been. Have you noticed that? He keeps going back and revisit. He even did it on the first missionary journey. So he went to all these places for the first time, but before he went back to Antioch, he went back and revisited those places in South Galatia again. And then when he started his second missionary journey, the first thing he did was go back for the third time to revisit those churches in South Galatia. And then he went on the rest of the second journey and went into Macedonia and Greece. Now... Here in the third journey, we see him going back to Macedonia and Greece. So he's constantly not only plowing new ground with the gospel, but he's also revisiting old ground with the gospel. And his purpose, I think, is very clear. He wants by his presence, by his repeated presence, to bring much-needed encouragement to these young disciples who needed more than simply to be saved and then to be left alone. They needed his presence there in order to inspire and encourage them to continue to grow in their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is Paul's MO as he gets ready to leave uh, Ephesus in the wake of this incredible riot that took place over the goddess Artemis that we looked at last Sunday. He is making plans to revisit Macedonia and Greece, and those are very familiar cities in Macedonia. There's Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, and then down into Greece, of course, we know there's Athens and uh, Corinth 
and Sparta, though we don't know that Paul ever visited Sparta, but he may have. Uh, And he'd already been to these places before. But his presence in those places mattered. They were crucial, as it still does today. Now, I would imagine that everybody in the house this morning knows what a blessing it is when you're in a tough situation. Anybody in here ever been in a difficult circumstance, a sticky wicket, a tough situation, a hard place, flat of your back looking up, times when you feel isolated and all alone? Every one of us in here knows what it's like to be in that situation, not sure what direction to turn next, and then you know the blessing of what happens when somebody who loves the Lord shows up. Somebody who not only loves the Lord, but somebody who loves you. And they don't even have to do anything. All they got to do is show up, walk through the door, Have you ever had that happen? And the whole mood changes. Everything becomes lighter. Everything becomes, even if it's for a few moments, everything becomes more tolerable. They don't have to do anything. They're just there. It's what I call the ministry of presence. And it's just powerful. Before Paul left Ephesus, One of the things he did was he sent Titus on ahead. Titus was a young preacher, about the same age as Timothy. He sent him on ahead to Corinth, through Troas, across to Macedonia, and down into Corinth, because Corinth was messed up. And Paul needed to know what situation on the ground was, so he sends Titus to Corinth on ahead of him with the intention to meet Titus after he'd made that reconnaissance tour to meet Titus back up in Troas, just north of where he was in Ephesus, about 200 miles. And then Paul leaves Ephesus and he lands at Troas. But who does he not find when he gets to Troas? He doesn't find who? He doesn't find Titus. Titus is not there. Titus is supposed to be here, that crazy young gun. He's not doing what I told him to do. Titus probably was 18, 19, maybe 20 years old, young man, young preacher boy. But he wasn't there. And that was such a disappointment to Paul that he records it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. Because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And he didn't live in a good frame. His soul was not at rest. His spirit was agitated. He was discouraged. Because there wasn't the presence there of his brother Titus. I I mentioned a Sunday or so ago that Judy and I were in a car accident on our way back from vacation this summer. Whole life flashed before our eyes. It was a bad wreck. And the car was just smashed. I mean, it was totally told. We'd never been in a wreck like that before. And we took Judy to one of the hospitals there in Birmingham just to get her checked out. Just as a precaution, we were fine and are fine. Um, But we were there all alone. That's weird, because the car's smashed. 
Now, we were going to go to the hospital, but I don't know what we, what do you do? I mean, do you ask the police officer for a ride to a hotel? I mean, I don't know what to do. So we went on to the hospital, and I'm just telling you, we were messed up. We were mentally and emotionally jacked up. Now, Seth, our son, who's 21, lives in Birmingham. He's a student at Sanford, but he wasn't there. He had gone to work a summer job in southwest Missouri. So we called him to let him know what was going on. And he said, you know what he said? He said, I'm, I'm on my way back. I said, well, where are you? He said, I'm in Memphis eating a sandwich. But I'll be there in about two hours. And I thought, thank you, Jesus. And we went to the emergency room where we were there for about three hours. It was quiet most of the time, just reliving the whole thing emotionally overloaded. And about the time they were ready to check Judy out, just before 9.30, that door opened, and that six-foot-tall, lanky boy of mine came walking into the room. And I, have, I, I don't think I've ever been so happy to see another human being in my life. When he walked through that door, it was like the presence of Christ showing up physically in the room. 21 years old, and he comes, and I just embraced him there. And I didn't want to let him go. I mean, we were just so thankful to be alive, but we were hurt in our spirit. And we were isolated and alone. But man, I'm telling you, when he walked through the door, the whole attitude changed it was as if Christ himself had walked into the room that brothers and sisters is the power of presence and I'm just telling you there's really no substitute for it you can know everything about the Bible back and forth but if you're not there for people it just isn't going to matter it's just not going to matter all that much Paul left Troas for Macedonia he didn't have any idea what had happened to Titus. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have email. He didn't know how to contact him, didn't even know where he was, didn't know if he was alive. And by his own testimony, his soul was troubled. Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Unbelievable. When Paul finally crossed the Aegean, left Troas where Titus was supposed to be, landed on Macedonian soil, made the 10-mile journey from the port to Philippi. When he got to Philippi, there right in front of him was Titus. And what word does he use to describe how he felt when he saw the young man? Comforted, which is the same word that we translate encouraged. The presence of the young man right there in front of him encouraged his soul. His attitude changed. His outlook changed. The whole environment changed. So this is a huge source of encouragement. It comes through the simple ministry of presence. 
You know, the words that are translated there are either comfort or encouragement. Comfort, encourage, the same word. It's the same word. Parakaleo. Parakletos. To come alongside. It's the word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. And may I ask this morning, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus Christ indwelling every believer. See, God is engaged in the ministry of presence himself with your life. The moment you got saved, the Spirit of God, the helper, the comforter, the encourager moved in. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus Christ living and coursing through your very being. And when that spiritual presence comes into your life, it comes with a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And what God wants from every believer is for his ministry of presence to be replicated by those who follow him in order that through your presence and mine, we can be an encouragement to other people. And we'll need that, and other people will need that. Because sometimes we're like the little boy who jumped into bed with his father during a thunderstorm, and the father said, I don't know why you're afraid. I've told you over and over again that the Lord is always with you. You can trust the Lord. He's always with you. God is always there. And the little boy looked back at his dad. Yeah, I know that, Dad, but tonight I just need a God with some skin on him. Right. <laughs> and you will too. Now, it's impossible for me to be present at everything going on in y'all's life as much as I want to be. I can't be personally present for everything. But here's what I know. The church can be present. That's the ministry of the church, not a pastor's ministry. I'll be there when I can for what I can. Count on it. But we can be there, present in the life of others for the purpose of encouraging people. So if you know somebody that's lonely, be there. If you know somebody that's struggling, be there. If you know somebody that's grieving, be there. If you know somebody that's lost, you need to be there. Because the scripture is very clear about the ministry of presence. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. We are a fragrance of life unto life. So it's true. Our presence is in a very real sense the very presence of Christ to those in time of trouble. If I had the power to wave my hand and make things happen in the church, I wouldn't give everybody the gift of prophecy because the Lord knows we don't need a church full of preachers. I wouldn't even give everybody the gift of teaching because I don't think we need a church dominated by teachers. If I had the power, I'd give everybody the gift of encouragement because on most days of my life, 
I need to be encouraged. And I know you do too. This is God's word. Let all who agree say amen.